2 Samuel 6, 12 through 17. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Thank you, Kathy. Well, I've made a, a habit of doing uh, prayer walks around our, our property here most days that I'm uh, at, at work. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. I, I think it might have something to do with my name, just like walking around in circles and praying. Um, you can think about that later. But I was, I was walking along this part of the, the, the parking lot next to the laurels next door and just felt like I was inviting me to, to spend some time in there every week. And so I went in and introduced myself uh, and asked, like, hey, I'd love to just kind of come in and spend time. Am I allowed to do that? And they're like, oh, you should lead a Bible study. We'd really appreciate that. The, uh, uh, we... Um, we, our residents would, would, would value that or whatever. Why was that funny? Leading Bible study? Pastor things? Whatever. Uh, I didn't want to presume they wanted me to teach the Bible. Happy to teach the Bible. Uh, the director was super friendly and gave me a tour. And so I was working with the activities director uh, to try to find a time to have a, a weekly Bible study next door in the Laurels. Uh, and there was a, a resident-led Bible study going on over there. <clears throat> um, but according to the activities director, the lady leading it uh, was pretty political, a little bit ranty, and, and it wasn't well received. Um, and, uh, but unfortunately, this Bible study was at the, the time that just like worked the best. It was the time that I thought I could like most realistically commit to being there most weeks. Um, and so <clears throat> I told her that, like, hey, could I just could I kind of step into that one, or what, what's the status with that? And so the activities director threw that idea out there, and it did not go over well. There was a, a deep, deep offense taken, uh, and so I was like, okay, okay. I, was, I went back to the calendar, try to find a better time, and I was like, there's just not any better times um, or, that, that, I could that I could realistically see. And so I was like, this is crazy. I felt like God invited me to do this, this weird scheduling hiccup with like, what's happening with this Bible study? So I went for another prayer walk. Uh, this is over the course of like weeks or maybe months. Um, condensing it for the, the story, and as I was walking along the edge of the parking lot, I was feeling angsty, you know, why, like, why would you feel, like, put this calling, this desire in my heart, but then not let it, let it happen, and God's like, have you prayed about it? <laughs> uh, and so I prayed, and I, and I, in particular, I prayed for the lady who was leading the Bible study, like, what's going on there, that she would feel so, you know, indignant, I prayed for her, prayed that she would know God's love, that she would feel peace, and be able to rest, um, I kind of got a sense that she was scared and sad and kind of taking her emotions out on politics. 
Uh, and so I prayed for her, went back to my office, wrote an email to the activities director being like, hey, I'm sorry, I can't find another time. I'll circle back in the fall and see what, you know, it, maybe I can make something work in the future if I start doing something different. But she emailed me back like less than an hour later and was like, oh, the lady's fine taking a break and you can start next week. <laughs> it's a silly little story, but it captures a bit of why I'm so pumped about prayer. I'm so excited about prayer. And I know I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to say that. I'm a little embarrassed to say I've never felt this way about prayer, you know, in in my life. Uh, So sweet, this refuge where whatever I'm ranting about in my head, I can just pour out to God. Whatever I'm scared about, I can tell God whatever I want to do, like honestly, even if it's like wrong. You know, I can just tell God, like, this is what I want to do. I know it's wrong. Help. It's just been so sweet. Psalm 142 talks about pouring out my complaints, pour out your complaints to God. 1 Peter 5 says, cast your cares on God because he cares for you. It's like prayer is the sweet spot. Of, and I feel like my, the way I experienced it or heard about it is like it was, prayer was like broccoli. It's like it's good for you. Nobody likes it. Maybe with a lot of butter it works or whatever. But it's just like, but I feel like prayer has become more like ice cream or like a comfy bed or something or like my favorite tool or something like that. It's like a, a weird mix uh, of metaphors there. Because uh, it's this comfort, this r- relational intimacy with God, but then it's a, like I said, it's a tool. It's a place of power, a place of getting stuff done. We've been lingering in prayer in our staff meetings on Mondays, and sometimes we like we, we pray and we get done, and we're like, I just feel like we just did everything. <laughs> you know, it's like let's let's just go home or whatever. And uh, because it, prayer is the work, as Ian e. Bounds once said, prayer moves the hands that move the world. So today I want to look at the story from the Old Testament, the life of David, and consider it as a way to think about a a little bit our life together as a church family. So if you haven't turned there yet in your your Bible, 2 Samuel 6, look at 12 through 17. Uh, The tricky thing about teaching the Old Testament is that it's all, you know, it's it's one big story, so many different connection, connecting points, but the background, the important, relevant background to this moment is that David was uh, selected to be king by Samuel when he was a kid, youngest of Jesse's sons, and uh, and then he spent the next, like, decade and a half running for his life, Uh, a long time waiting to be king. Uh, Saul was king uh, when David was picked to be the next one because he wasn't a good king. Uh, The throne was going to be taken away from Saul's family and given to David. And Saul didn't like that and spent years trying to hunt David down and kill him. So David spent lots of time in caves, praying, as we get a lot of those angsty psalms that were uncomfortable to read, like Psalm 39, like, get, you know, drink a cup of coffee before you drink that one. There's some, like, scary psalms where David's pouring out his heart to God. And after years of running for Saul, Saul finally dies, and David is anointed king uh, by the elders officially, like, of Israel, you are now the king. But Saul's son, Ishbosheth takes over the palace at Jerusalem, by force and surrounds himself with Melissa, uh, not Melissa, militia, sorry. That was a weird slip of the tongue. She was a really tough lady back then. I just, I'm sorry. Oh, jeez, let me drink your water. So after running for his life for 15 years, he gets anointed king and now has to wait in a little town for seven years while this imposter is on the throne in the palace I'm sorry, can't get over Melissa, the tough lady. Um, Sorry if your name's Melissa. 
So David's waiting in a small town, waiting for the time when the thing he was selected from a boy to do, when the thing he had been anointed by the elders to, uh, to become a king, can finally enter God's holy city and take his throne. And, and the moment that we just read about, that we're looking at today, is the moment that all of that waiting, all of that suffering, all of uh, the wondering has come, has been waiting for. The years in the cave... The, the, the years in a small town waiting to take the throne. It's seven years to dream as, a, as the anointed king, to come up with political strategy and military strategy and plan his first royal business plan and, and, and plan his grand entrance into the city of God. And with that backstory, the way that David had chose, chooses to enter God's city and take his throne is absolutely shocking. Verse 12. So David, was we'll start halfway through verse 12. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So you would have heard this procession from a long way off, like maybe if you lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and you would have been like, here we go. Like, let's, let's let, it, let it rip. You'd probably expect, culturally, a huge military formation. Uh, all the army, most of the army in full regalia marching, and the military sang songs typically about the glory and victory of the ruler. And ba- they'd have banners and trumpets and dancers, like all kinds of hype men paving a way for the king to come. And there'd probably only be one float in this parade, and it'd be at the end of the parade, and it'd be a throne on a platform with the new king on it, smiling, waving, adorned in extravagant kingly robes. So I think you can see how vastly different David's plan was. Because there is a song being sung by the people, by the army, uh, that's hyping people up. Uh, it's one that David wrote, actually. And we have the lyrics in our Bible. It's called Psalm 24. Uh, and this is how the chorus goes of, the, of this David's entrance song. Verse 7 of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Let the king of glory may come in. Which, that sounds about right. That sounds about on expectation, uh, on, in line with what we'd expect. But then look at the next line. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. David, the rightful, long-awaited king, is coming not with songs about himself and about his own glory, which he'd done a lot. He'd actually accomplished a lot at this point. Instead, it is the Lord God, Yahweh, who is the king of glory. Which is why the one float in this parade, the one thing being carried on a platform is not David on a throne, but it's the Ark of God. The Ark of God was a sacred wooden box. Uh, You may have seen it in Indiana Jones. It was carried by God's people all during the Exodus and uh, all through the wandering of the wilderness. And it symbolized God's presence on earth. The Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God was the, the spot, the, like the, wherever it was, that was where God's divine presence was on the earth. 
It was the intersection between heaven and earth. So it was much more than a box. It was God's presence. But we've got to ask, why wasn't something so important already in Jerusalem, already in the holy city? Well, under King Saul, things got a little cushy, a little comfortable, a little distracted by war and power and money. And so it was left in a field. It was discarded, which I think is often what we, we all do when we get comfortable or excited about other things. You know, it's the presence of God gets left in a field, which is why David's entrance into the city as king is so amazing because he wants to bring God's presence back into the center of God's people. Instead of being the big finale of the parade, David is in front, and instead of being on the throne, he's on foot. Instead of having dancers and trumpets hype up his interest in his entrance, he himself is God's hype man. He's a hype man for God, the King of glory. And he isn't dressed in elaborate kingly robes and a crown. He's wearing a linen ephod, which was a simple garment made for priests. And listen, it wasn't even like the fancy ceremonial garment of a priest, like on the high holy days. It was more like the undergarment, like a plain undergarment that would have gone under the fancy ceremonial robes. David on foot, dancing in a linen ephod before the ark of God is a profound statement that would have been crystal clear to everybody watching this parade. It's like David is saying, I'm not coming as a king to sit on a throne. I'm coming as a priest to lead you into the presence of God. And not only that, but I'm like the least of all the priests, not even worthy to wear the fancy outer ceremonial garments with the robes and tassels. Isn't that beautiful? It helps us understand why David was called a man after God's own heart. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. So they take the ark of God to a tent, or to use a churchy term, a tabernacle, that David has pitched in the middle of the city. This tent was not impressive, but it was a big deal. Uh, the, this tent, this tabernacle, was in the tradition of the tent of meeting where Moses, during the Exodus, would meet with God face to face and talk with God as you would a friend. The tent out of which Moses would come with his face so bright, shining so bright for having been in the presence of God that people would ask him to cover it, to wear a veil. The tabernacle which housed the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, was the, was the place where God's presence was on earth. And David has put this tabernacle, this tent, back up right in the middle of the city, right outside the palace gates to be a tabernacle, a place where people could meet God, to house the ark of God, the intersection between heaven and earth. And most political leaders, most presidents, you know, they have a first order of business like a, a pet project that they, hopefully, that they hope will set the tone for their time in authority and hopefully define their legacy. David's first act on his first day of king in Jerusalem was to reconstruct Moses' tent of meeting, meeting God in the center of the city to place God's presence back in the center of God's people. 
That was his big idea. His big idea, after seven years of waiting in a small town, planning his, his rule and reign, was, is something like this. What if, we, what if we pitch a tent to be a space where anyone and everyone can come to worship and pray in God's presence? Nothing fancy, just a, a common space in the middle of a city for prayer, to be with God. And next we see in... in uh, First Chronicles 25, uh, that David uh, made some hires early on in his time on the throne. And in a time of tribal warfare with nations surrounding the, his country to attack it and pillage it and you know, burn villages, what, instead of hiring more soldiers or, or better st- strategic generals, David hires 288 worship leaders, prophets, and elders uh, to pray and worship in this tabernacle at the center of the city, as far as we can tell, day and night for the next 33 years of David's reign as king. All this spiritual emphasis from David uh, as he set up his time as king might seem beautiful, or if you think about some of the realities of being a king in that time, it could seem foolish. But one of the interesting things that history would say is that no matter what metric you use to evaluate, David's time on the throne was the high point of Israel's history in terms of unity across the 12 tribes, economic prosperity, military success, everything. Author Tyler Staten points out a pattern that we can pick up from this story. Prioritize God's presence in the church and you get God's kingdom in the city. Prioritize God's presence in the church, you get God's kingdom in the city. Prioritize praise and worship. Prioritize being in God's presence, being with him, enjoying him, not necessarily to get something from him, not as just like a fill up the tank to go do more stuff, but just to be with him, enjoying him, delighting him, contemplating the Lord's glory. And you see the kingdom spread outside the church. I use this time to do a commercial with some fresh books on the book table. A lot of what I'm saying is inspired by this book. This is called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, which might be too hipster-tastic for you. Highly recommended, though. A readable book on prayer. But during David's 33-year reign, uh, his tabernacle was, a, was, it was this incredible anomaly in the history of God's presence on earth. Like that, that's a theme you can trace from, from Genesis, you know, till Jesus comes. Of like, what, what's going on with God's presence? Where is it located? Who can access it or whatever? And these 33 years of David's tabernacle, this tent with the Ark of God in the middle of God's city, Jerusalem, was the only 33 years before the resurrection of Jesus that there were no restrictions on access to God's presence. It is a New Testament reality in an Old Testament world. Once the temple was built, there were all these courts that only certain people could go into at certain times and certain places. But David's tabernacle, God's presence in the center of God's people was available to everyone. Men and women, Jewish, not Jewish, to enjoy God, praying, worshiping the God who can satisfy their souls. 
But the story of David's tabernacle does not end there, like when it ends and they build the temple and he dies and Solomon becomes king. David's tabernacle is a theme that you can, you can trace throughout a lot of scripture. Look at Amos 9, 11, and 12. And that day I will restore David's fallen shelter, or tent, or tabernacle, same word in Hebrew. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and I will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. This is a prophecy to God's people when the kingdom was divided. And the kingdom in the, in the north was not walking closely with God. They were wealthy people. They were spiritually apathetic, going through the motions of worship with no real devotion to God. And so, similar to how King Saul left the ark out in the field. Prayer and worship had fallen from the center of God's people. And Amos, the whole book of Amos, is a brutal, brutal warning prophecy of judgment. But what we just read in chapter 9 is at the end of the prophecy, it's this beautiful message of hope that God will restore David's fallen tabernacle. I will, he, he will restore his presence in the midst of his people. He will do it again and rebuild it. And all the nations that bear God's name, not just the Jews, every t- tribe, tongue, and nation will come. It's pointing forward to the Messiah. So it won't surprise you that in John 1, announcing the, the arrival of the Messiah, God's true anointed king, the truer and better David, in verse 14 it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That made his dwelling is a verb form of the word tabernacle. It's like Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. God's presence on earth was no longer in a box and a tent. It was a person, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the truer and better David, makes his own entrance as king to God's holy city on Palm Sunday. It's another royal procession. But Jesus is not riding on a stallion full of power and glory, but humbly riding on a donkey coming in peace. And what do the people shout? Hosanna. Praise be to the son of who? David. Jesus, the one true king, does his royal procession, not surrounded by an army and all the regalia, but 12 scruffy disciples riding on a donkey. And he goes to the same place that David goes with the ark. He goes to the place of worship in the middle of God's people. But what does he find when he gets there? He finds that this place of worship, specifically the outer courts where the nations and non-Jewish people could draw near to God, was a madhouse of money-making schemes and elaborate programs and busyness and structures surrounding the worship of God that had become a barrier to many people looking for simplicity of prayer and worship. And Jesus cleanses the temple, drives people out with a whip and says what? My house shall be called what? A house of prayer for all nations, just like David's tabernacle. Do it again. That's what Amos' prophecy is saying. I will do it again. And here we have Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus says to the church people of his day, you've made it a den of thieves. It's so much more about money and being busy and making the system work. That worship and afterthought are, are just kind of an, uh, something to tack on if there's 
time and space or it's like part of a show that we keep going every week. Can I share a quote I read this week that's been keeping me up at night? I have the mic, so I kind of, you have to hear it. The modern church's best kept secret is this. We believe in productivity, not prayer. We believe in solid programs, above average teaching, and another worship album release. The church's underground atheism in our time is that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. That's from this book, which probably isn't good advertising. You probably don't want to read it now. Our underground atheism. David's mind-blowing first move was to put prayer back in the center of God's people. That's my dream for us here at Carl Road Baptist Church, a radical reprioritization of prayer. I think we need to lean into prayer with a tenacity in this season that we're in. Like we as a church family, like we as individuals live in seasons of some are good, some are bad, some are hard, some have a lot of joy. It's all a mixture, and we as a church family together are in a season. It's not always the same kind of season, just like a farmer doesn't use the same tools or do the same work every day. In this season where there's been a lot of transition, where the future is unclear, we're going into a new chapter that hasn't been written yet, and we're not sure the details of the way forward, we need to lean into prayer. Waste time in prayer. Draw near to God. Pour out our fears, our concerns, our anger, our sorrow. And by prayer, I mean two specific things. First, prayer is spending time in the presence of God, contemplating the Lord's glory, beholding him, looking at us in love. Do you know God looks at you in love? That prayer can be this invitation to be with the God who loved you so much he would die for you, who wants to know you, who calls you a daughter, who calls you a son, who feels more love towards you than I feel towards my kids when they crawl into my lap and start telling me what they want and what their day was like. And second, power. Prayer is work. There's a a resting in prayer and there's a work in prayer. Like in some church traditions, on the Sabbath, they they encourage people not to do intercessory prayer on the Sabbath because it's work. So one day a week, like just bask in God's love, you know, and intercede the other days or whatever. Uh, That's a different kind of prayer. I don't know if we think of it like that. Like prayer is work. And so this prayer of presence and then a prayer of power, that we would join God in his work, pray that God would let his kingdom come in our church as it is in heaven, in Northland as it is in heaven, of course on earth as it is in heaven, praying that God would raise up David's tabernacle again here. We'd have another season of it, experience of it here in our church and in Northland. And so I have three Ps, the prayer or the presence, the power, and then priority. Let's talk a little bit more about presence. I just want to invite you, first and foremost, to see prayer as a time where you are with God. That he's with you, he's listening to you, he's speaking to you. We can listen to him in the place of prayer. Another one of the books on the book table is Richard Foster's book on prayer. The subtitle is called Finding the Heart's True Home. What if we were a church family where prayer was where our hearts found their true home? Because whether... 
you know it or not, whether you're a more of an active, I love to serve kind of person or more of a, a quiet, slow moving, contemplative person, what our hearts long for is the presence of God. Before we pray for other people, all the health concerns and travel mercies, missionaries, and we intercede for the lost, we must come to, come to prayer aware that we are with the God who loves us, the with the God who can satisfy our souls. A prayer must be where we bring our real self. I read this recently. If prayer is boring for you, it might be because you're not being honest. When you're keeping your heart from God, squashing down your feelings, not being honest about your desires, pretending to care about something that you don't really care about, prayer is going to be miserable. Years ago, I found myself not being honest with God. I've always been into journaling, and, but I, I, I realized I was kind of like subconsciously journaling for posterity. Uh, I'm not saying that right. Posterity. There it is. Like, like I, I wanted my journals to be published, inspire. You know, you know, we read other great Christians' journals or whatever. And so they were just kind of phony. It was like kind of a humbling realization. And from that point on, I just went to being brutally honest with God, with whatever was going on in my heart. If I was mad, I wouldn't check all my motives and make sure it was, you know, whatever. I would just like pour out my anger to God. He can handle it. He can sort my motives. You don't have to clean up my heart. You don't have to clean up your motives to come to God in prayer. He can do all that. He can sort out the, the mess. What he wants is you. He wants your heart. He wants intimacy with you. We talked about this a little bit in the announcement, but fruit flows from intimacy. I didn't marry Camille as a child-raising strategy. We do raise children together, but I married Camille because I love her and I delight in her and I want to be with her. And it's out of that intimacy that children show up in marriage. If you pursue fruit without intimacy, it leads to exhaustion. If you follow the metaphor too far, it, it, it does violence to your soul. If we try to do things for God or produce fruit for God without an intimate being with God, it will do violence to your soul and wear your soul out, which brings to the next P, power. Again, Jesus says it very plainly, painfully, bluntly, apart from me, you can do nothing. And instead, he says to abide in him, in his presence, being connected to him like a branch connects to a vine, to the point where we're like the same organism, united in Christ. And a branch can simply be a conduit through which the fruit flow, well, fruit, fruit is produced through the vine flowing life through the branch. But the reality is, can we be honest? We can do a lot of things apart from Jesus, right? Like the world is full of people doing lots of things apart from Jesus. Like you know how many, I've been trying to keep track of this. It's overwhelming. Do you know how many community events happen in, just in Northland every week? Festivals, parades, food truck events, you know, Easter egg hunts, like all that stuff is always going on in Northland. Do you know how many kids get tutored at the library how many immigrants get resume help at the library? Like, there's a lot of things happening in, in Northland. And so I think you could flesh out Jesus' statement to say that apart from me, you can do nothing of spiritual weight, eternal sub substance and significance. This is a terrifying warning for me as a pastor. I could preach my heart out, meet with 100 people a week to do pastoral care and discipleship, 
but apart from Jesus, it is nothing. We can be busy doing activity for Jesus without the power that comes from being with Jesus. And prayer is probably the primary way that we can access the power of God. It's a practical way that we can abide in the vine. It's a beautiful poetic image, abide in the vine. How do we do that? It looks like prayer. If you can worry about it, you can pray about it. If you can rant about it to your spouse, you can pray about it. A great example of this is our LifeWise project here, teaching kids from Forest Park Elementary the Bible. It's up and running. And from what the LifeWise people tell us, it's like one of the best programs they've ever seen take off in Columbus Public Schools. Uh, Guess what we spent the summer doing? Prayer walking around Forest Park Elementary. I mean, there was a lot of work that went into it. Julie Large and others were cranking it out. But it's been a beautiful to see the fruit of those Tuesday nights prayer walking around Forest Park Elementary. We, as a church family, have an incredible history of doing things for Jesus, doing things to reach lost people, and I don't want to lose that. But if my opinion counts for anything, I think we need to scale some of that back for a season and lean into being with Jesus to access the power of Jesus in prayer. My dream, my hope, is that we can waste time in prayer. Because it's being with someone. You waste time with people that you love. Say no to other things so that we can spend more time praying. Which brings me to the last P, priority. Priorities are only a priority if they, if it, they empower you to say no to other things. You can't say it's a priority if you just have all the priorities. Like, I worked for a church that had 12 core values, which meant it had no core values. You know what I'm saying? Like, you value and prioritize everything. You end up spread thin, powerless, distracted, prioritizing nothing. A mentor of mine said, it isn't real until it shows up on the calendar. I feel a little, like, you know, crusty, white guy, love my calendar or whatever. But, you know, I think there's some wisdom in that. There's space for spontaneity, but calendar it. Put some blocks on your calendar to be spontaneous. That's that's, that's how spontaneous works. And that is what I want for us as a church family with prayer. Yes, we can pray all the time. Pray without ceasing. Breath prayers. In the car. In bed. Yes and amen to all of that. But in this season, I want us to put prayer on our calendar. Collectively as a church family. And I invite you personally to like put prayer. Literally type it into your Google calendar, your day planner, whatever. Uh, to put prayer in there. There's two ways. First, our brand new prayer room. This is the back room of the library, Pastor Swanson's former office. Uh, it's been completely remodeled. Some pictures there with Amy Worley's legs showing how you can, you can rest in God's love with your feet up. A uh, huge shout out to Mark Large and Sean Worley and Amy for, and others who, who all they did to make that space beautiful and comfortable. Uh, you know, it's not anything fancy. Uh, but it's a, it's a place to, be, uh, to be, be set apart for prayer. I think our building, last I heard, was like 52,000 square feet. That's what we've been blessed with in terms of interior real estate here at Carl Road. Now we have about 300 that are set aside permanently only for prayer. BSF doesn't meet in there. This is just a permanent space for people to get away in prayer. My prayer is that this is like our little tabernacle of David. This is our little way where we can make available to everybody to come and be with God 
you know, it's big enough for maybe 10, 15 people or whatever, uh, so you can go alone, but it's also not so big that it's awkward to be in there alone. Um, anyone can reserve time in the prayer room. Uh, we bring a couple friends or go alone. Camille, my wife, she spent most of yesterday in there uh, doing some silence and solitude, and um, I, I opened it up. Uh, you, I'd encourage you after the gathering, go back and look at it to see, see what it's like. I think the plan for our prayer room is on Sunday mornings, it will be open from like inside the building, like you can go through the library to get in it, uh, but during the week, uh, it'll just be uh, available, that, that door will be locked, and it'll just be uh, available through the exterior entrance, so you could like park on that, that part of the parking lot, walk down the, and go into the, the door there. There's a keypad in there, and when you sign up online, you get a code, until, you know, when your time is, you put the code in, you have the room to yourself uh, during the week or whatever, but... Uh, yeah, I would just encourage you, like, you know, I'm a friend of God. What do you do with your friends? You schedule lunch. You go grab coffee. You make plans to be together. And I would just encourage you to set a date with God and go away from your normal rhythms and distractions to just a simple, quiet place to be with God, somewhere you can pray. I've been blown away by, I feel like this is like a growth edge for Baptists because we're just, you know, We'll pray anywhere, whatever. Uh, Other traditions of the church feel differently, but there is incredible power in a space dedicated to prayer. Again, I'm not minimizing that we can pray in the car and everywhere else, but time in prayer rooms, like, it's just different. And uh, it's just way from the normal places, the distractions, and 10 minutes, uh, an hour can feel like 10 minutes when you just kind of get to a quiet place to be unhurried with God. So you can book an hour, a whole morning, a whole day, whatever, uh, and go to uh, prayfornorthland.com slash prayer room um, is the, the place to, to sign up there. We'll eventually get it on our website, working on all that stuff, uh, but you can sign up any, any time, um, any day of the month. Uh, the second way is that we're, we're putting it on the calendar, prioritizing prayer as a church family, is through our monthly prayer watch. We're joining churches around Columbus in the Columbus Prayer Canopy, which is a cool thing. It's this initiative to make a canopy of prayer over the city of Columbus, where there's, there's someone praying for Columbus 24, uh, 24-7. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a long-term build. The ho- hope is to have it fully up and running in uh, 2024. But the idea is one church covers one 24-hour prayer watch uh, to, to kind of take their, their role uh, of the canopy. And so the idea is that, you know, 24 of us, uh, would sign up for one of those 24 hours. It starts at you know, midnight, ends at 11.59. Um, and you'll get a little prayer guide of some things, city-specific things to pray for, and eventually we'll have like a church prayer guide. Um, and then, of course, anything else you want to pray about during that hour. Um, and then we'll also do three corporate prayer gatherings on our prayer watch, the third Monday of every month at 7 a.m., noon, and 7 p.m., um, so you can cover your hour uh, of the prayer watch on the third Monday in the prayer room. So it's booked for church people. So if you sign up for the prayer watch uh, to take an hour, the prayer room is yours. You can uh, go there if, you, if you'd like. You don't have to. Or pray at home. Um, and you can join us for our, our kind of corporate prayer gatherings, those three during the day. So that's kind of what I, what I hope we'll, we'll do moving forward. There's other, again, there's other ways to pray, but I just invite you to jump into these two things. Put it on your calendar, meet with God, see what he does. The term underground atheism of the church, that we prioritize pretty much anything over prayer, 
uh, haunts me. And so I just want to invite you to fight, join me in the fight against that. Instead, pursuing the presence and the power of God Almighty, who calls us friend, by praying in concrete times in our calendars, alone and together. I, and I, I, I believe in the power of prayer. Like, if we join together in the work of prayer, I believe we will see God do incredible things in our own lives and together as a church family. And I believe we'll look back on this time of focusing on prayer and see it as, as the seedbed, as the, as the point at the beginning of a beautiful new life together here as a church family at Carl Road Baptist Church. And it's, and it's for God's, God's glory and it's for our joy. Let me pray. Oh, Father, how can it be that you're mindful of us, that you want us to talk to you, that in Christ we are clean, we are pure, we are forgiven, we are your children, and so you just love for us to come to you and be with you. What a gift it is in our loneliness to pour out our hearts to you. What a gift it is that we don't have to censor ourselves or memorize super specific fancy prayers, but we can just pour out our hearts, pour out our complaints, cast our cares. I thank you for Jesus, his work on the cross, who paid the penalty for our sins, um, who justified us, made us right with you, that we could receive the Holy Spirit and draw near to you. Father, I pray that we would be uh, a little season in the history of your big C church where the, the, the tabernacle of David is raised up again here in our midst, here and even in our building, that we try to steward it for your glory. Thank you for the, the joy it is for my own heart to see the prayer room uh, come into existence and be, be available. And Father, would that just, would that just mark uh, the, the tone, the culture, the vibe of our life together as we move forward as a church who prays, who wastes time in prayer alone and together, who loves being in your presence. Would we see what it means to be a branch? Like branches aren't stressed. Branches don't strive and strain. They just abide and have grapes show up. And so I pray you'd show us what that means. Father, I pray uh, this is not just for us. I do believe there's incredible joy. There's love that we ache for in this call to prayer. But also, I know it's not for us. So you bless us to be a blessing. That there's people around us right now uh, out in Northland in our city that are hurting, that are lost, uh, that, that want, want you but don't know it or don't know how to get it. So would you please uh, have mercy on us and uh, fill us with your spirit to be a light in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us if you're able. Let's close our worship with song.